We are in a sermon series this summer called uh, In Need of Grace, and we've been looking at a lot of different kinds of folks who are in need of grace, uh, hopefully to show that everyone needs grace, but we're just trying to be specific at looking at, at, at specific individuals. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking uh, at the Gospel of Luke chapter 3 and uh, the story of the two debtors, but specifically, we're going to be looking at the, uh, the, 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 the sinful woman or the woman who is a sinner, as, as, uh, as it's referred to in the passage. And I, I want to have a disclaimer. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's every pastor's hope that when we preach a sermon, that we touch hearts, uh, touch hearts in a way that, that changes, changes people. Uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about a number of sensitive subjects. We're going to be going deep, not necessarily deep theologically, but but, but deep into uh, our emotions and, and talk about some sensitive things. So I just wanted to clue you into that uh, before we get too far into the sermon. We're in uh, Luke chapter 7, and we see this, this sinful woman. And what I think is in, one of the things that jumps out at me immediately before we read it, I just want to point out, she, she doesn't have a name. She's just the woman who is a sinner. Um, She's so disgraced by her sin, she's so identified with it, we don't refer to her by her name, but only by her sinfulness and her shame. And she's reviled by her community. And uh, it made me think uh, about perhaps maybe not an entirely godly attitude on my, my part. Uh, I, there's, there's certain names that I don't like to, to say out loud. For instance, the, the national champion... Uh, college football champions. I, I, don't, I don't like to say the name of that school. I, I worked at the University of South Carolina, and uh, they're our main rivals, and so they're the school that shall not be named. That's the way I refer to them. Oh, reviled in my house. <laughs> um, the, this woman, she's reviled. She's not a person. She's a sinner. Um, and, you know, as abstaining people, a lot of times we don't like to be associated with those kinds of people, people that we think are beyond redemption. Have you ever used that phrase? Those people, those, they're just beyond redemption. Well, Jesus is going to teach us something this morning that's scandalous, and hopefully you're going to find that not only is it scandalous, but it's marvelous, that no one is beyond the grace of God, not even the self-righteous. With that in mind, let's read Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, jar, alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Uh, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. 
Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. She gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning, and by your Spirit, we ask that you would be with us, as you have already been with us in, in our songs of praise and in our prayers, in our time of fellowship. Now be with us as we submit ourselves to your Word. Help us to understand the meaning of this story, its, its application to our lives, to our hearts, and help us to be open to seeing the truth, the truth not only of our sin, but of your mercy. And will we be changed by it? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in her book, <clears throat> Hope Has Its Reasons, evangelist Becky Manley Pipper tells a story of a woman who came up to her after a talk she was giving. Maybe some of you are aware of uh, Becky Pippert. Um, she, uh, you know, those of you who are in college ministry in the 80s, like I was, uh, her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, was uh, must-read material. Um, and she con continued on in her ministry as an evangelist and speaking around the country. And so she had this one encounter with a woman after one of her talks. And this is how uh, Becky talks about it. Years before, she, the woman who came up to, to Becky, and her fiancé, to whom she was now married, had been the youth workers at a large conservative church. Everyone looked up to them and admired them tremendously. Now, a few months before they were to be married, they began having sexual relations, and she soon discovered that she was pregnant. We felt that they wouldn't be able to handle it. Uh, she's talking about the church here, that, that their church or congregation wouldn't be able to handle knowing about our situation, nor could we bear the humiliation. So we made the most excruciating decision I have ever made. I had an abortion. My wedding day was the worst day of my entire life. Everyone in the church was smiling at me, thinking me a bride, beaming in innocence. But do you know what was going through my head as I walked down the aisle? All I could think to myself was, you're a murderer. You were so proud that you couldn't bear the shame and humiliation of being exposed for what you are. But I know what you are, and so does God. You have murdered, murdered an innocent baby. Uh, the woman continued, I, I just can't believe that I could do something so horrible. I know the Bible says that God forgives all our sins, but I can't forgive myself. I've confessed this sin a thousand times, and I still such, feel such shame and sorrow. The thought that haunts me the most is how could I murder an innocent life? What thoughts haunt you? What failures cling to you and, and harass you in your life? Are you the woman from Pippert's story? Are you a businessman who's defrauded people? 
Other people don't know about it, but you do? Are you the unfaithful spouse or the vengeful spouse? Are you the woman from our passage who is only identified by her failings? You know, as we were talking about this sermon series and different kinds of people we would talk about and who do you relate to, who do you resonate with, and some people were saying, you know, Daryl, you might resonate with uh, Nicodemus. He's the scholar. He's the smart guy. You know, Daryl, you're a smart guy. I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying, you know, that's some of the things that get get said. And I got to tell you, uh, I don't feel like the smart guy. The one I resonate most with is this woman, this sinful woman. Because I feel shame. Do you? Well, God has a word for me and for you. And it's this, that God's grace is more than a match for our failures. So don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed to come to him. Now, shame has a way of of really putting this vice grip on us and tripping us up in our walk with God. And I think there's at least three ways that it does that. I'm going to talk about all these three. First, it's just the shame of failure itself, that we missed the mark, that we, we just didn't do it. We didn't do what we were supposed to do. The second is not simply that we failed, but maybe we failed so badly that we can't put this right. We've screwed things up so badly, it's beyond repair. And then lastly, coming to grips with the fact that we're forgiven, but then the shame of, am I ever really going to live up to that forgiveness? I'm never going to measure up. I'm never going to be the person God wants me to be. Let's start with the first. Uh, Start at the beginning with the failure itself, the shame of being a failure. You know, and failure comes in uh, infinite forms, doesn't it? I mean, there's so many ways we can go wrong and screw things up. Uh, failure um, to be a good provider for your family. Uh, failure to reach your full potential. Failure as a mom. Failure as a son or a daughter to make your parents proud of you. And we can go darker into things like theft, embezzlement, adultery. Violence, the ways to be a failure are many. The word I like is myriad, which just means it's a fancy way of saying many. But we can be so creative in how we screw up, can't we? The passage here, though, talks about two ways, or at least two ways, uh, we fail. One is through immorality, and the other is through self-righteousness. There's this woman, woman who was a sinner. She's, uh, she's the immoral person. Some people say she's a prostitute. You know, the passage doesn't say that. We don't know what she's done. All we know is that whatever she's done, she's got a reputation because everybody knows. And her reputation is not a good look. And then there's Simon the Pharisee, who's so blinded by his sense of righteousness that he can't see how judgmental, how arrogant and cruel he is. We don't like to be confronted with how we are failing and the shame associated with it. Um, 
we, we, we hide from it, we, we run from it, we either bury it under uh, our efforts to be good and we say, well, you know, I, I do fail, but look at all this good stuff that I do. Really, I'm a good person. Or we simply just try to run away from it. Not exactly deny it, but distract ourselves with other pursuits. Now, Simon, he's buried his sin under self-righteousness. And uh, if you were here last week, we talked about Pharisees and the fact that Pharisees really are people of accomplishment. They, they had to work hard. They studied hard. They've memorized scripture. They have keen minds. They know how to debate. Um, he is a man of accomplishments and success. And Pharisees, believe it or not, really did affirm the need for grace. Sometimes we think but they're just pure legalists. Well, the way you earn your way to God is by being good, and, and that's salvation. The Pharisees really believed that we did need the grace of God, but, but they didn't need that much of it. Um, salvation was accomplished by obeying the law and some of God's grace. But there are some people who screwed up so badly that they are beyond redemption. Simon doesn't see himself as someone who's beyond redemption. He sees the woman who's a sinner. She's beyond redemption. See, the sins he commits are more forgivable. At least that's his perception. And that's where the story of the two debtors comes in. Now, some important background uh, for this parable. It mentions this term, uh, this, this uh, monetary uh, unit, the denarii. Uh, what is that? Well, it's a day's wage. It's what you get paid for an honest day's uh, labor. Okay, So think of that for yourself. What, what do you get paid every day? Well, someone owed 50 days wages. That's about a debt of three months. Uh, depending on what you get paid. You can think of that as a car loan, okay? Maybe a nice car, but a car loan, very manageable. Now, again, all of you here, I know you're very responsible people. You all pay cash for your cars. So, you know, you don't know what it is to have a car loan. But, you know, for most people, a car loan is really manageable. Then someone else owes 500 days wages, well over a year's salary. Uh, that's more like a mortgage, a big mortgage. Um, maybe you can think of it something like, you know, not only are they mortgaged, but because of the economy, they, they've gone underwater, man. They've gotten themselves into some real trouble because of some poor decisions made. And wow, how do you get out of that? Well, glad it's not me. That's Simon's perspective. He needs grace. He knows he needs grace, but only car loan grace. You might say that he considers himself qualified. He's qualified for that level of debt, that level of grace. But he hides the true depths of his shame and his fear under that respectability, and he won't, won't face it. Some of us are there. We, you know, I think I can manage my sin. Others of us, no, there's no hope in managing it. It's bad. And so we just run. We run away from it. We're disqualified from grace, so we run from God, we run from our sin, we run from the people of God, we run from our families, we try to bury our shame under other pursuits to distract us from it, maybe the pursuit of wealth or nice toys uh, or maybe booze and pills, maybe sex, and in the process we compound our shame. We all are tempted to hide the self-righteous and the immoral not wanting to face the truth of the situation. We put up these defenses. Defenses, really, that aren't ultimately up to the job. Um, I know they're not up to the job because I, as I get older, I see in myself and I see in my friends and colleagues 
the fact that we need to run harder, the fact that we need to insist even more loudly that we are good, that we are people of accomplishment, people of reputation. Don't you know who I am, what I've done in my life? I'm a good person. That becomes louder as we get older, not quieter. The running gets harder. I watch college students do a lot of dumb things in their lives, and then I watch 40 and 50-year-olds, man, really compound all of that. But it's all the same. A defense to keep us from the truth of our shame. But those defenses become more and more ineffective. Not that they ever covered sin, but they become less effective in distracting ourselves or convincing ourselves. We need grace. And Jesus tells us in the parable that that grace is there for all of us, both the qualified so-called and the unqualified or disqualified. And just like the words of the song we're going to sing shortly, God's grace is really the only defense that I have. We're going to sing the sword of Lord, I need you in a little bit. And, and some of the words go like this, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. <clears throat> there is no effective defense against our shame and guilt. Except the grace of God. And you're not beyond the reach of that. Disqualified or not, however you think of yourself, you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. Beyond the shame of failure in and of itself, sometimes we deal with the shame that we've screwed things up that uh, we can't put it back together. It's all beyond repair. We get the idea of being forgiven. We don't need to serve the jail time. We don't need to pay the fine. But things are never going to be the same again. And that's my fault. And we, we carry the shame of that. Well, let me tell you a story. In fact, it's one of the craziest stories of someone that I know personally. <clears throat> I became acquainted with a fellow uh, elder in our denomination, a gentleman named Roy Yankee. Uh, a couple of decades ago, uh, Roy uh, had been in, the, in, in, a, in a secular field, but left a career <clears throat> to go into the ministry. <clears throat> he was a very gifted pastor, a great speaker, great relator uh, to, to people. But the ministry can be stressful. And, uh, and the stresses of it sometimes, you know, if you're not dealing with it properly, you look for ways to uh, take the edge off. And you begin to, some pastors, nobody I know. Uh, but, you know, we're tempted to, to take the edge off of something. People call it self-medicate. And this pastor, Roy, was self-medicating with illicit sexual relationships with high-end prostitutes. And uh, if you think that's the bad part of the story, just wait. In paying for these high-end prostitutes, he started to fall into debt. <clears throat> debt so, so great that he was having trouble hiding it from his wife and from his family. And he was desperate not to be discovered. Um, so he came up with a pretty outrageous idea. Some of his background was in the banking industry, so he thought to himself, I know. I know how I'm going to get myself out of debt. I'm going to rob a bank. I'll just do it once, but I'll rob the bank, and I'll get out of debt, and, and then things will be different. And he did. He robbed the bank. 
And he got away with it. And he paid his debts off. And then he got into debt again. I'll just rob a bank a second time. And then that'll be it. I'll just rob a bank a third time. That'll be it. A fourth time. A fourteenth time. And that's when he screwed up and he got caught. And the police came to his church office and arrested him. And he served a seven-year prison sentence. Talk about doing something where things can never be the same. But in his capture, he was confronted with his sin, his guilt, his shame, and he repented. And there was mercy. It was a severe mercy, but it was mercy. And, and by God's grace, he was reformed. Or maybe better yet, he was transformed and became content with being more honestly in relationship with God and being in a more true and intimate relationship with his wife. Yes, his wife stayed with him through all of this. And content with a career outside of the spotlight, outside of ministry. And he began, he got out of prison and he began to build another career and live a more quiet life, content with the unbelievable, unbelievable mercy uh, that God let, let him stay married to this woman. Now, what happened informally as he was in church was that he, he, he began to meet other pastors or f- former pastors who had fallen in ministry or were, bring, were burning out, and he began caring for them. And his pastor and his, even his wife began to say, There's some, God's doing something here. Uh, you, sh- you, should, you should begin ministering to pastors on a regular basis. No, I don't want to do that. That part of my life is over. Uh, I'm content where I am. But they kept coming back to him, and he kept having opportunities to meet with people. And eventually, he became involved with a professional ministry where he's ministering to pastors only. And if you ever talk to her, he's like, I am never going back into pastoral ministry. That is not where God is calling me. I'm going to do this behind the scenes to care for and restore pastors, not necessarily to the ministry, but to restore them to their relationship with God. You know, after deep sin and shame, we ask this question, will things ever be the same again? And the bad news is this, probably not. But the good news is this, it might be better than it ever was. Because God will be dealing with you and you'll be dealing with him honestly. And you will know God's rich mercy for you in a way you've never known it before. The sinful woman has been running from God and her sin, and it led her to degradation and shame in her life. But she sees in Jesus this unqualified invitation to be near him, and she comes, focused not on her shame, but on his inexhaustible grace. And I think of the song that we sung earlier, that song, Overwhelmed. God, I run into your arms unashamed because of mercy. And every time I hear that song, whether it's playing on the radio or I'm listening to it, I'm streaming it on some app I have, uh, or I'm singing it in worship, I weep. I did it three times today. I cry because I'm overwhelmed with the God that I keep betraying, 
that I keep letting down, that despite the fact that I screw up things in ways that can't be put together again, he calls to me. He calls me home because that's where I belong. And the image I get when I sing that song is of a child, small child, looking to his or her father and seeing such acceptance that they just run and jump into their arms and the father is just overjoyed to receive them. Oh, what a picture. He calls us home that we might experience more deeply than we ever have the love and mercy he has for us. We live with shame, the shame of brokenness, but God's grace has the power to put things more right than they've ever been. And that's why Jesus can say to this sinful, immoral woman, overwhelmed with Jesus' love, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Don't you want to know that? Don't you want to know the freedom uh, from your shame because God is putting things right? Don't you want to know the peace that comes along with that, the freedom from the shame, the shame that's been harassing you? And if you want to know that, then come to him. Come to him unashamed. Now, personally, I feel like I could stop the sermon right here. And as I'm looking at the clock, maybe you're hoping that I will. Um, but there's more good news in this story. Because while we know that we can be forgiven and while God does restore us to relationship, we may still deal with some shame of the fact that, I, am I ever going to be the person God wants me to be? Am I ever really going to measure up? And the story addresses that sense of shame as well. Yes, Christians, we lose our temper. We let our loved ones down. We still do selfish and shameful things. And we could focus on that. We could focus on our failures. But that's not where the focus of this woman is in this situation. She's forgiven, yes. But she's also better. She's becoming more than who she was. She's not focused on her failures. She's focused on her Savior. And because she is, she's changing. Let's look at it again. Verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. And this is the custom here. Coming in from the, ancient, the roads from the ancient world, they're dirty, they're dusty, there's filth in them. Uh, who knows what's on your shoes or your sandals. So it was a courtesy to have a servant wash somebody's feet when they came in, kind of like someone taking your coat. Oh, you've come into my house. Let me take your coat for you. Uh, a little more messy than that, but that's kind of what it was. Simon doesn't offer that courtesy to Jesus. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. You gave me no affectionate greeting, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, Jesus knows exactly who this woman is. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. 
but he who is forgiven little loves little. She loved much. You know, we focus on our failures, so much on our failures that we blind ourselves often to what God is actually doing in our lives and the successes he has in our lives. The sinful woman, uh, she knows she's forgiven and that forgiveness and that joy compel her to be with Jesus, to worship him, to anoint him, to show deep affection for him uh, by washing his feet. Uh, Again, a courtesy that, that Simon did not show him. She is shameless in the way that she is loving her Savior. And love, according to Jesus in another place, is the fulfillment of the law. The Apostle Paul, talking about uh, what the Christian life should look like in his letter to the Galatians, tells us that the working of the Spirit should, should bear fruit in all kinds of things, in faithfulness and kindness and joy. You probably could, could rec- many of you could recount that, that particular passage. But the first of them is what? Does anybody know? If you don't, you can just look on the screen because it's right there. Say it again. Love. Love is the first and greatest sign that the Spirit is at work in your life. And this woman loved much. You know, apart from Jesus, this sinful woman, so-called, is the most godly person in the room. And she likely wasn't even aware of it and didn't care. She didn't care about comparing herself to anybody else in the room. That She was with Jesus. She was taken with the vision of the Savior who took away her shame and embraced her without reservation. And that affection, that worship, that love just poured out of her. It was a fruit, not a work. Do you get the distinction that Paul's making? It's a fruit. It happens naturally when you're taken with the Savior. You know, our measuring up, the idea that we're failing here, that we're not working hard enough, uh, that's not how we grow. I'm not saying we shouldn't be aware of our places of failings and, and, and seek to have them eradicated from our life, but often our growth happens not when we are paying attention to a specific area, Not when we're focusing on our failures, but when we're focusing on Him. Our majestic, glorious, powerful, merciful Savior. And then the deeds of the flesh fall away like an old husk, revealing the character of Christ. And we become like the one we look upon. So the question for us is, how do, how do we do that? How do we gaze upon Jesus? He isn't here with us physically anymore, so how are we supposed to do this? Well, we do it by, by seeing him in the scriptures, by looking at the stories and, and seeing his character and his love and his mercy. Not so we can say, so we can say to each other, hey, I've memorized, I've memorized this passage. You know, I, I know all of Psalm 119. And those of you who know the scriptures, that's a long psalm. That's impressive. But that's... We don't, we don't memorize it to earn something with God. We, we, we look at it and memorize it and cherish, cherish it in our heart that we might store up in us a vision of Jesus. We see him by looking to him in the scriptures, by recognizing his presence in, in the sacraments, in the Lord's Supper, and in baptism, in honoring his image as we see it in other people, particularly the poor and the weak 
and the needy. And as we care for them and serve them, we can gaze upon the image of Jesus as it is is born in them. They are all made in the image of God. And we do these things in the faith and hope of catching a glimpse of our Savior. Again, not that the deeds themselves earn us anything. They are simply opportunities to be taken with Jesus again. And as we do that, we change. Sometimes we think that, well, Daryl, you don't know what I've done. And you're right, I don't. But it doesn't matter. I don't need to know. I know that you are not beyond the grace of Christ. I know that many of you remain haunted by the shame of shameful deeds. But Jesus has taken on your guilt. He's taken on your shame and the cross, and it was no match for him. And you know how I know that? Because he was raised from the dead. He said, do your worst. They did their worst. They put him in the grave. What worse could they do? And he rose. And that is what the woman who had an abortion discovered. Uh, Becky Pippert continues the story in her book. And, and she was, in the book, she talks about that as she was talking to the woman, the, the spirit seemed to be urging her to say something which was pretty radical. And she was resisting it because it felt like it might be really obnoxious and offensive. But it, it, was, just, it was just eating at her. And, and so this is how she continues the story. I took a deep breath and said what I had been thinking. I don't know why you are so surprised. This isn't the first time your sin has led to death. It's the second When you look at the cross, all of us show up as crucifiers. Religious or non-religious, good or bad, aborters or non-aborters, all of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent person who ever lived. Jesus died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Becky writes, she stopped crying. She looked me straight in the eye and said, you're absolutely right. I've done something even worse than killing my baby. Becky, if the cross shows me that I am far worse than I ever had imagined, it also shows me that my evil has been absorbed and forgiven. If the worst thing any human can do is to kill God's son, and that can be forgiven, then how can anything else, even my abortion, not be forgiven? Now, Jesus knows you. He knows all about you. He knows you better than yourself. He knows everything you've done. So stop pretending and stop running. Stop letting shame convince you that you're beyond God's grace. Again, I don't know the specifics of your life. But I know my Savior. And I know this, that whatever your failings are, they are no match for God's infinite, powerful amazing grace so you can come to him unfettered unabashed unashamed let's pray father thank you for this reminder of your love your your unbelievable love and we ask that you would impress upon us um, that your grace it can reach us Help us to be honest with you, Lord, in our shame and in our guilt that 
we can turn it over to you. And that we might know the profound depths of your mercy. Father, we're about to spend some time in silent prayer. And I ask that by your spirit you would move us to an honesty we've never, we've never had with you before. To confess privately our sin and our shame. And by your spirit, would you bring comfort to us? Would you let us know that our sins are forgiven and that we can come to you unashamed? Father, use this time right now and teach us about your mercy in ways that we've never known before. Father, for the sake of your son, Jesus, we do ask for your forgiveness. And we pray that we might stop running, stop hiding, stop burying our sin in hopes of distracting ourselves from its reality, but to be honest with you. For you are a good father who loves and forgives us and calls us, calls us home. Father, would you help us to believe the words of the psalmist David, when he calls on us to repent, but then also know the joy of your forgiveness. But when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Father, thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name.